Hey, can we, uh, the Lord has assembled a new staff about, you know, six, eight months ago, and they're just crushing it. Can we uh, clap for Chad, Ronald, um, Thule, Brandon? Um, Brandon, uh, they just had their second baby, uh, and little Nicholas uh, Ronald Smith was born uh, and is healthy and doing great. So uh, you can pray for Brandon and Tolani. They uh, are in for it. They're 15 months apart, the two of them, the, the babies, so... I've been there before. Deconstruction. Deconstruction, dismantling uh, your personal faith or dismantling the faith of the church. Uh, ripping it apart, taking it stone by stone and watching it crumble. Deconstruction. Maybe, maybe you've heard uh, uh, some prominent uh, figures in the evangelical church uh, have con- gone through deconstructing their faith. Uh, maybe uh, you've heard of somebody uh, within your own sphere or family, a person who's saying, well, I'm kind of in this kind of mode of deconstruction where uh, what I used to believe, I no longer believe. It's all crumbling or falling apart. And, and maybe it's because of the past two years. Uh, this article was in the New York uh, times uh, this past week and is titled The Dissenters Trying to Save Evangelicalism from Itself. Uh, David Brooks writes it, and here's his first paragraph. Think of your 12 closest friends. These are the people you vacation with, talk about your problems with, do life with in the most intimate and meaningful ways. Now imagine if six of those people suddenly took a political or public position you found utterly vile. Now imagine learning that those six people think that your position is utterly vile. You would suddenly realize that the people you thought you knew best and cared about most had actually been total strangers all along. You would feel disoriented, disturbed, unmoored. Your life would change. Uh, This is the feeling that lots of uh, folks are feeling these days of uh, an unmooredness. Uh, uh, The boat is unattached from uh, a stable connection to the sea, uh, and and you are floating adrift, uh, a deconstruction. The the things that you had constructed about your faith or who you thought the church was or who you thought your Christian friends were, it's kind of all falling apart. And, And we're in 1 Peter, and 1 Peter is... Written to elect exiles, we said the first week, uh, people who are feeling the shakiness of their lives. They've begun a new faith in Christ and, and things are starting to fall apart in Pontius, Galatia, and Cappadocia as they show up probably to make their homes there and, and displace maybe the people that are there. And, and they're met with hate and, and they themselves are probably hated because they are Jesus' followers. And and the first thing Peter says to them in verses 3 and following, we, we talked about is, is that, remember, man, you belong to Jesus, and, and today is not always, so hold fast in these shaky times. Last week, we looked at the idea of holiness. We're, we're called to live differently in these shaky times when things are a bit falling apart in your own life personally or uh, in the community around you or the churches around you. We're called to live holy lives. We're called to be set apart. That The standard of, of holiness is God Himself, perfection. And thank God by His grace, He then meets that standard of holiness by the precious blood of Jesus for us and calls us in to live differently. Uh, today I want us to focus on in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, really. 
on what is God constructing? What is God building in our own life and in our church and in a, a stable, firm kind of way that, that can never be deconstructed? When everything falls apart, this is what God is doing to construct in our own personal lives, in our communal lives as His church together. What is He building? And why will it never fail? And really then, after we look at what is being constructed, I want us to step back and say, okay, how does that impact our identity and our purpose then as God's people? When everything else seems to be falling apart. So God's building program and then our identity and purpose. Let's, let's get into the kind of the, the weeds, or, or might we say the brick by brick of uh, these verses, the, the details of what God is building in His building program. Verse 4. As you come to Him, who is Him? Jesus the Lord, that's from verse 3. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are some of the details? Uh, as you come to him, Jesus, Jesus who? Who's the living stone? He's alive. He's not a static stone or dead, uh, but he's uh, the living stone, uh, once dead, but now resurrected and alive and doing something alive in this moment of Peter's letter and in our moment as living stones who are being built on top of him. He was rejected, exiled, kicked out. By men, rejected, as even John chapter 1 will say. He, he came to his own, but his own rejected him or, or kicked him out, refused him. But in the sight of God, God himself, God the Father, chosen and precious. Uh, he is the, the, the one true elect exile in whose uh, our lives takes pattern. Uh, he's the template for how we live. He, uh, the elect chosen exile. You yourselves then are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. A spiritual house, an oikos, a household. Not just a building, but it easily kind of transitions into that idea of a, a people, a holy priesthood together, uh, who aren't static uh, ourselves, but are living a household together built on Christ, the chief cornerstone, the, the main living stone, in order to be a holy priesthood. We're going to look a little bit at that later, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, do you get the picture? Uh, we, we, like living stones, are being built onto the resurrected living stone. Jesus himself who's the cornerstone at the uh, edge of two walls coming together, built on him. Were his people alive and active and messy, really messy. <laughs> For it stands in Scripture that this was God's plan before all of time. It stands in Scripture that this one who was going to come and be rejected, but who was chosen and precious, Jesus, he, he says of him, Behold, I am laying in Zion, in heaven and now on earth among his people, a, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
God has this, this plan, this eternal plan to lay in the heavens eternally and then bring it to pass on earth when Jesus comes, a, a cornerstone. I remember we looked at that image, that this cornerstone is this big, kind of uh, well-hewn stone. It's perfect, it's massive, and, and one wall comes to it this way and another wall comes to it this way, and it's at the very base of the two walls. And, and if you're built into that structure, that household is God's people, it's the sturdy spot, the place that holds the whole building together. But if you're outside, then you trip on it when you walk by. It's this big old stone that juts out of the corner, and and you stumble on it. You you might fall and and hit your face. And what's the delineating line? Belief. Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Will not stumble, but will be sturdy. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Notice there's no neutral here. Either you believe and your life is built on Christ, or or you do not believe and you're outside of the house and you you stumble on Christ. He'll either be uh, your stability or your stumbling block. And you'll either uh, be be honored in Christ by grace and and held firm and and make it into all of eternity with Him now unto forever, or you will fall and crumble. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. These are the details, the little bricks of the passage, but what's the image? What what is going on in this passage? All of Peter's readers or listeners, as the letter was probably read out loud to these people who are exiled and elect, they're all kind of picturing what God has been doing from that day way back when he called Abraham. And that God is building a temple, a place where he would dwell. And, and he calls Abraham, he says, I want you to be uh, my people. And, and so in Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abraham is kind of set a, apart or consecrated as God's uh, kind of head of his people, right? And he, he uh, kind of goes about and he leaves his land in order to go into the promised land. And when he gets to the promised land, he's, he's given a son, Isaac. And he's like, oh man, this is my son, finally the one I've been waiting for. And in Genesis chapter 22, the Lord says, sacrifice him. Slaughter him on Mount Moriah. So that's what Abraham goes to do. And Abraham climbs up the mountain in Genesis chapter 22, and he's about to slaughter his own son, and the Lord provides. And, and, and Abraham says, oh God, you've provided. I don't have to slaughter my own son. And this ram is given, and, and they slaughter the son. They erect an altar on Mount Moriah. And God dwells there with Abraham. And then we see kind of time goes on. Uh, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Joseph. And, and all of God's people go into uh, uh, slavery in Egypt. And then Moses, remember uh, Moses, he, he brings God's people out. And this is all the history of the temple, of what God is doing to build his house with his people. Moses comes out and, uh, of Exodus with, with all of God's people and they build a tabernacle. Go back with me just to uh, Exodus chapter 25. You can turn your Bibles there. Exodus chapter 25. Moses is given all these kind of commands and instructions of how he's going to build this tabernacle, this tent that they're going to carry around in the wilderness as they wait to the day that God is going to bring them into the promised land. 
It's about 150 feet by 75 feet. It's got these uh, huge curtains, and, and then uh, you've got uh, the Ark of the Covenant. You've got the, the covenant that's made of acacia wood, and, and you've got the, the Testament, uh, the Ten Commandments, and then you've got uh, the mercy seat on top, and then all these kind of ornate instructions. Uh, so much, though, that, I mean, it's like 10, 20 chapters, right? So uh, the Lord gives all these instructions, and even as you read it, you're like, man, this is really tedious, <laughs> And then after all the instructions are given, then you get all these about 10 or so chapters of actually building the tabernacle. And then in Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and following, here's what happens. Exodus 40, 34 and following, when the people must have kind of felt the tediousness, the intricacies of kind of building this tabernacle here's what occurs then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle and moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of god filled the tabernacle Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God himself, in his glory, comes to dwell with his people. To meet them, to be with them, and then to guide them, to walk with them. Uh, Moses doesn't even go in because everything is kind of consumed by the presence of God. It's, it's not until uh, Numbers chapter 1, you get Leviticus, which is all these laws and the Levites and, and how they'll function in order to approach this holy God who's now come to dwell with them. But then in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Sinai in the tent of meeting. He dwells there with him. I fast forward the story a little bit to the kings. First and second chronicles, first and second kings, you get all these kind of stories of God's people being led by kings, presidents of sorts with tons of power. And you've got David, he's the second king of Israel. This is First uh, Chronicles chapter 21 and following. You, you've had Saul, and he really did kind of a crummy job. And then you've got uh, David, and he's doing a great job. He's kind of uh, known as uh, the one who is after God's, had God's own heart. Uh, but then, uh, kind of when he's conquering all this land for the Lord, and he's been given it all by grace, uh, he takes this census in First Chronicles chapter 21. It's as if he's saying, man, I did this with all my armies, and his pride is welling up. And It's as if he's saying, uh, my next endeavors will be carried out by my own strength as he takes this census. And the Lord says, nope. And a pestilence comes, and 70,000 Israelites are killed that day. And then the Lord says, you need to go purchase this threshing floor. Uh, where you separate the, the wheat and the tare and, 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 and you get uh, edible food, in a sense, right, at the threshing floor where the wheat is separated from the chaff. And you need to go purchase this threshing floor, and guess where it is? Mount Moriah. Back where that sacrifice was made 
And so he purchases this threshing floor, and right there, this is what David says in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. David said, here shall be the house of God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1. David commanded to gather the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. 1 Chronicles chapter 22 says, I'm going to cut some huge stones. We're going to build this amazing temple for the Lord, right where uh, Isaac was going to be sacrificed, but God showed his grace, and, and right where God uh, ought to have kept killing us for my disobedience, but he showed his grace, and he says, I'm going to make the house of God right here, and he starts cutting these stones to build a temple. And God looks at him and says, you're not going to build my house. <laughs> Down in verse 8 of chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles, You've shed too much blood. My temple is going to be built by your son, Solomon. And so David gathers all the materials necessary for the temple. But he doesn't get to build it. But then we go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And the same kind of thing occurs that occurred in the tabernacle where the Lord came to dwell. And, and Solomon gathers all the needed materials uh, that uh, his father had begun gathering, David. And now he's got a, a whole pile to build this temple. And he gets all the instructions and, and he builds it. And then right here in chapter 7, verse 1 of Second Chronicles, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven. And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest couldn't enter the house of God because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. He has come to dwell with us in His temple. His home is here with us. This is all in the mind of Peter's listeners and readers. God's building a temple. And they can't think of the temple without thinking about priests. And so we uh, go back and we think about Exodus chapter 28 and 29 and how uh, Moses uh, hands on the priesthood to Aaron and the Levites. And he says, man, here's a problem. The Lord is dwelling with us, but he is holy and righteous and pure, and his glory would consume us because of our sin. And you read all through Leviticus where these laws are written and the Levites are established and how they're going to kind of atone for the sins of the people. Leviticus chapter 4, just, just listen to this. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering, a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, this goat, and then kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of his blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar the burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat it shall remove, and the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest will burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. God, the holy God, dwells with you in this temple, but you, you can't approach him because of your sin. So, so uh, we need the priesthood to say, bring this animal, and then put your hands on the head of the animal. Is it to transfer your sin and your guilt to him, and then slaughter that animal in your place, and, and splatter the blood all over the altar. It's a gruesome process to say, that should have been me. And, and through the story, what we see is God is saying, I want to dwell with you. Build me a temple I can come down and dwell with you. But you can't approach me because your sin and your guilt. Uh, so uh, the, the, the priesthood is erected and all these laws that say you need atonement for your sin. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what we read in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are the temple. You are the priesthood in Christ. You are the place where God dwells. I am the place where God dwells. We together are the place where God dwells. Uh, we are the intercessors between uh, man and God. Uh, certainly there is one mediator, Jesus Christ himself, but we get to bring people to him and say, here's how you meet God the Father and be embraced in grace, not crushed in guilt. That's us, Peter says. That's what we've been waiting for. The new covenant, you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. This is the mystery. What's the mystery for us Gentiles and everybody else? It's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. By faith, now I live as he dwells in me. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, as Paul prays, may Christ dwell in your hearts together. 1 Corinthians. This is one of my favorite passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following. Everyone's bickering about who are they going to follow? Who's the, who's the best leader of the church at this point? Is it Apollos? Is it Paul? Is it somebody else? And, and then Paul starts speaking and he says in verse 9 of chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, we're God's fellow workers. You're God's field. You're God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. What's that foundation? Which is Jesus Christ himself. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold or silver, precious stone, anything else, it's going to be burnt up. And then he says in verse 16, do you not know that you, you all, all y'all, this is Texas for uh, all y'all, plural, us together. Don't you all know you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? Don't we know that God Himself has ascended and dwells in and with us? We are the temple of God. We are the priesthood of believers. 
That's the image. That's what Peter is saying. And it has everything to do with our identity and our purpose then. A firm foundation of who we are and what we're about. Identity. Identity, verses 9 to 10. But you, y'all, <laughs> are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are a chosen race uh, from Abraham and all the descendants and the Jews into Christ, now uh, the race of God. Not white, not Korean, not black. Not Latino. You, you are the chosen race, a, a new race in Christ. A royal priesthood. Uh, when before, it was the, the Levites uh, bringing people to worship and be cleansed by God. And now it's you in Christ. Not, not moralism or tolerance, but, but you Christians. You're a holy nation. Uh, before it was Israel, uh, uh, God was bringing His promises and His grace through His people Israel. But then in Christ, uh, now we are the new nation of God, not American. We are people of God's own possession. The, um, how we might translate it, the apple of His eye. Not God's people, the Jewish people, or, or even uh, the Old Testament covenants of, of anyone who was converted into Judaism to then uh, approach God Himself. But now in Christ, any who come directly to Christ. Not evangelicalism. Christ. Peter goes on. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. This is who we are. This is our identity. In sum, this identity is gifted, it's primary, and it's communal. It's gifted. You are His people. And not you were until you messed it all up and, and you sinned in that kind of way that nobody knows about. Or you sinned repetitiously or grievously. Uh, you are God's people. You, you didn't have mercy, but now you do have mercy. Not, not you will be. Not you will be when God's, uh, be God's people when you do enough to make your way in there. To be good enough to be His. Primary identity, gifted by grace. Are, not were, will be, gifted. Didn't have mercy, but now we have mercy. Primary. There's a primary identity. Uh, does this hit you that, that your race, your ethnicity, it's not primary? That whiteness shouldn't shape everything in our church and in our culture. That we shouldn't choose our churches based on what kind of uh, ethnic or racial culture they have. But we together should shape a new primary race together in Christ. We should be able to talk about that honestly and openly and say, man, uh, white normalcy is really permeating this place. Let's, let's talk about what does that look like. Primary. 
primary. Not our race, not our ethnicity. Primary, not, not our nation, not our nationality. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, man, how we've messed that one up over the past four years. Every side, both sides, particularly, though, in the conflation of uh, evangelicalism and, and the, the right wing. Really, uh, particularly in that wedding. I don't care how you vote, who you voted for, any of that kind of stuff. That kind of wedding is a problem because the same problem will exist when that wedding occurs uh, for progressivism or conservatism. When that wedding occurs, our primary identity is no longer our primary identity. And that's ugly and disastrous and communal. Our identity is communal. We can't be who we are alone. We can't, can't do it. We can't be who God is calling us to be alone. But knit into the local church, built on Christ with each other. Where the gospel is primary and being preached and, and Jesus is being exalted and, and his church and, and authority is being uh, exhibited and the, the sacraments and the ordinances are being rightly practiced. We can't be who we are alone. Which is why church membership is so important. Who we are. Primary, gifted, and communal. What's our purpose? It's that we would... Then, so that, here's the purpose statement, verse 9, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We would shout about him, nobody else. Our lives together and our lives alone would be uh, lived to demonstrate, declare the good news of the gospel, what, what Jesus has done for us, bringing us out of darkness uh, and giving us light, uh, uh, making us uh, from outsiders and exiles to insiders and family. Never put to shame, never put to shame, built on Christ, living a life that's not about me. How can we put to, be put to shame when your life is not about you at all? You got nothing at stake. <laughs> Never put to shame. Never ending purpose and identity. Into all of eternity. Following an ever faithful God who will never fall or crumble or be deconstructed. This is our identity and purpose. Never to crumble. Never to be put to shame. And if we notice... This passage implies two building projects. The passage implies two building projects. Let's see, you've got this group of builders who, who look at Jesus and say, nah, reject him. And then you got God himself who says, yeah, he's the one I want to build this thing on. And we're built by God himself to be his holy priesthood, his household, built on Christ, never to be put to shame. And what was the delineating line? Belief, trust in Christ. Our 
around middle school or high school, you'll, you'll probably start deciding, what do I want to build my life on? And that'll kind of go the rest of your life. You say, I want to, I want to build it on my career, or I'm going to build it on friendship, or I'm going to build it on my abilities on, on the sports field or, or other, right? I, I'm going to build my life on these things, right? I don't know if you knew this, I was a high school English teacher for a couple of years, and I was kind of waiting for Courtney to graduate, uh, and then uh, we'd get married and go off to seminary, which is what we ended up doing, and, and so I taught high school English, and so I was at Brook Point High School, and I thought I was a pretty good English teacher, and, and then, uh, you know, uh, the school reporter comes in to uh, my classroom and says, Matt, you've been nominated for the hot teacher con- contest. I said, man, I thought, thought it was my teaching, my English abilities that had, had gotten me some acclaim around here. And they're like, no, you're number two on the list. I'm like, oh, shit, you know, like number two on the list. And uh, the school is a school for the blind, you know. So I was, uh, it's not, it's not. Um, and so they're like, can we interview you? Because you got the hot teacher pie eating contest coming up for uh, Spirit Week. And I'm like, okay. So they interview me. And they say, oh, what's one thing you want all high schoolers to know? And I didn't have to hesitate. I said, high school matters. Right now matters. The choices you're making, they will affect the rest of your life. And so they quoted me, and they put, they will affect the rest of your life. And I thought that was kind of ironic as an English teacher that they got those two words wrong. But, but see, somewhere in middle school or high school, we start deciding, what am I going to build my life on? Is it going to be how, what I can accomplish, how, how, how much people like me or enjoy me or, or how smart I am or how much I can accrue or all this kind of stuff? And, and it doesn't end when we get our first job and, and, and move into our first uh, condo or apartment, then neighborhood. And we just, uh, the rest of our lives start thinking, what am I going to build my life on? And this passage says, if you build it on anything other then trusting in Jesus and who he is and the identity he gives you by grace, you will be put to shame. It'll crumble and fall. If not now when you realize, oh man, I can't live up to uh, what I'm trying to attain or this is not fulfilling or my, my friends fail me or, or I'll never be smart enough or good enough. If, if not now uh, by grace that you realize, oh my gosh, this is not a firm foundation. I cannot build my life on these things. I need Jesus. If not now by grace we don't realize it, then in eternity when you stand before God, you will crumble and be destroyed. I ask, this is what it says. So don't, by all means, do not build your life on anything else other than Jesus Christ. Or you will be put to shame. You'll feel the inklings of it now, and maybe you keep trying harder to build more, or do more in your own building program over here, building on something else other than Jesus. You'll, you'll feel the inklings of it, but, but let those inklings point you to a fact that, man, I've got to cling to Christ. i still got doubts, but i gotta, I got to cling to him. Man, the church is still messy and ugly and treating me wrong, but i got to cling to Jesus. That whole evangelicalism, that, I don't want any part of that. I want to vote for him or do that, but, but I want to cling to Jesus. Do not be put to shame by trying to build your life on something else. There is a lot of shame in, in the evangelical church, at least right now. There's a crumbling and a dismantling going on. Um, I 
But I think why this often occurs, and there's a whole bunch of great quotes in there. You ought to read it. An opinion article in the New York Times last week by David Brooks. But I think one of the reasons there's this dismantling of our faith, why people are like, oh my gosh, everything I believed about Christianity is wrong and I can't follow that way anymore, is that people's faith in the church is failing. Rather than faith in Christ. And I think there's this piece that it's throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater kind of proverbial phrase, right? Where like if, if you have a bad burger, you say, I'm done eating. And you have this kind of experience, and it maybe even be a very pervasive experience when it comes to race or politics or uh, sexuality. And you realize, oh my gosh, that is an ugly thing I don't want to be a part of. And then you start questioning, or you kind of grew up in purity culture, and you're like, oh man, that was really devastating in my life. Or someone in the church hurt you. And then uh, in all these things, it was your faith in the church that failed. That thing, that living organism of relationships was ugly, and it fell apart. But, but man, uh, you've got Jesus over over here who wants to build something utterly different. And, and then, but what will often happen is say, I don't want any part of this, and you throw Jesus out with the bathwater. I think Jesus will be angry too. When he comes, he's new on the scene in John chapter 2. You can turn there with me if you've got your Bibles. Please bring your Bibles. John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews is at hand. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. This is early in his ministry. In the temple, he found that they're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers are sitting there. And he's mad because they're stealing from the poor. They're kind of over docking their prices for what they're selling these sacrifices for at the temple. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of politics or sexual immorality or racism. Don't make my house that kind of house. Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? You're messing up our kind of, our status quo. Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will rise it up again. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? They're like, we got the house of God. We know where he is dwelling. It's right here. We built this thing. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He said, I'm building something new. And it's going to be his body torn down after he lives a perfect life in our place. He'll be ripped down, dismantled, destroyed on that cross. Then he'll be risen to newness of life, a living stone. Why? To build in us 
a temple in which God himself would dwell and we would be all about Jesus and, and living for him and proclaiming the excellencies of our God who has called us out of darkness into light through Jesus by his grace. Yeah, we'd be a mess in the process, but we would keep clinging to Jesus over and over again. And, we, and our, our mission statement, who we are as a church, might be something like this. We would follow Jesus together for the good of his world. That he is who we'd be about and we would be his people where he would dwell. And where others might meet him through our lives. That they, too, would not be put to shame by grace. If you've uh, come to our church from some other church hoping to find a perfect place here, uh, let me say, it, sorry, we're, gonna, we're a mess too. We're an absolute mess. We, we get it all wrong in those areas that everyone's so intense about today. But we're trying to make this what we're about, following Jesus together for the good of the world. And we got three letters this past week, and they're, they're just fantastic letters. Um, I'm going to read this one. We're short on time, but you've got to hear it. Uh, we served inmates and their families by providing uh, 60 kids plus um, gifts this past Christmas through Angel Tree. And thank you, Sarah, and so many who, and Abby and others who served in this. This one came uh, from, it says, the Virginia Department of Correction has neither censored nor inspected this item. I mean, it's like, this is straight out of the prison. In Dillwyn, Virginia, from Jack Antonio Romero, one of the families, uh, the dad, who we gave gifts to. I'm writing this letter to thank you for reaching out to me to let me know that you and the Well Community Church have personally given gifts to my children for Christmas. It means the world to me that people didn't even know me would do something like that for me. My kids are my everything. So I could do anything for them, I, I would, but unfortunately, I landed on bad circumstances. Everything that I've done was for my kids, but of course, the law doesn't see it that way. I do understand that what I had done was wrong and illegal, and I take full responsibility for it and have to pay my price. So to have someone do something great for me and my kids means so much, because it means that I'm not being judged for the mistakes that I committed by you and by your church. I'd like to thank you in the church from the bottom of my heart for that as well. To be completely honest, it's very hard to be positive in here and to not lose faith with so much negativity in here. For me to be able to be at least talk to my kids over the phone, it helps me not to give up and keep my faith strong. They remind me why I need to keep pushing so I could be with them again one day, even if it will be when they are adults. I do have days that I feel like the worst father in the world because I let my kids down. I let them down because I'm going to be responsible for them growing up the way I grew up with one parent absent. For me, it was my mother who was absent in my life. Since I was five, I went my whole life hating my mother because I felt she had abandoned me because she never came back to me. I fear that my kids will also feel the same way about me, so I pray to God every day that they don't lose hope and love for me. When I got locked up, I decided to get in contact with my mother so I can forgive her. Because God forbid something happens to her before I'm free and don't ever get the chance to. I also did it so I can feel free myself from all the hate I had in my heart and in my hope that my kids will also forgive me. I'm blessed that I at least have contact with my children, sometimes that my mother did not have with me. 
I miss my kids every day and would do anything to go back to the time and change the way things went down. However, everything happens in the will of the Lord, and if it wasn't for what happened, I would probably never have forgiven my mother. So I strongly believe that this was even God's plan. Even though I'm locked up away from my children, who I love more than anything in this world, my children who are free in my heart, I would like to thank you and your church for giving me that blessing to feel good about myself. It's not just because my children have gotten gifts for Christmas, but to let them know that I love them very much because I signed up for this to bring them that joy. I apologize for my long letter. Thank you. But I don't have no one that I could really talk to. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a friend in this world. I have friends when I was free, but it seems like once you really need them, they don't know you at all. Anyways, thank you again for your kindness. You really touched my heart, and I pray that God blesses you, your family, and everyone in your church. I think that's the kind of church that Jesus is building, had already built, and will continue building till he returns. A church that says, we want to be about the one who poured so much grace on us in Christ that we want to then pour it out and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. As we prepare for communion, I want us to read the psalm that Peter quotes all through this passage. It's Psalm 118. It's the same passage that Jesus quotes three times talking about how he, a precious stone, is going to be rejected. It's the same passage that Peter then quotes when he's talking about Jesus and the house that the Lord is building in us in which to dwell and to bring others into relationship with the gracious, mighty God. And it's the same psalm that priests would have sung at the Passover feast when they're slaughtering lambs. Parts of it go like this, Psalm 18, 1 and following. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then down to verse 19, where Peter's going to pick up this idea and quote. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now get this. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the Lord's doing. That his precious stone would be rejected and crucified in our place to make us his people, his household, that he would dwell with us and salvation would come. That we would be built up as his spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices, our very lives, to proclaim the excellencies of our God and all he has done, praising him alone with all we live, say, and do. If you believe in Jesus this morning, will you take and rejoice 
who he is and what he's done. And if you don't trust this morning, would you cling to Christ this morning that you would not be put to shame? Let's take and eat together.